0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Uh, Sparrow, it's good to see you. Uh, oh,
1: Andrew. yes. Thank
0: you. Andrew, yes. it's good to uh, be in to your be company. You.
1: It's wonderful
0: to be here. Thank you. My name is Sam, and I am going to start with where we were once before with uh, Elizabeth Dadam Warren. And, you know, I was touching on mathematics and her belief in statistical analysis as a basis for making decisions and for shaping policy. I'm taking a little bit of a segue here. But then for some reason, uh, based on this guy, James Pearson, whom I think I mentioned, who, you know, worked for John Olin, who did these law and economics camps. um, You know, he said economic analysis tends to have conservatizing effects, which Mm -hmm. then brought up for me the algorithm and that with an algorithm, you have that for which you are sorting through material And then you have loss. And it's the basis of this exclusionary rules of the algorithm that you produce loss. And when you, the loss from an evolutionary standpoint, it's in the aberrant output that we change, that change manifests through the adoption of smoother skin that allows you to skid on the ice better. And so that becomes an evolutionary trait, you know, through, um, through Darwinian evolutionary uh, principles, right? And so that loss, nadie, and chance and so forth, in algorithms, in the algorithmic mode, loss is what doesn't fit. And what doesn't fit is so- connected, to my mind, to the last train to Nuremberg. In part,
2: can, can you, Sam? Can you just go over exactly what you mean by loss? I'm, I'm, I'm lost.
0: Oh, in <laughs> other words, an algorithm will do a system analysis, but it's only reading for that which it's interested in. For example, you know, oh, within wow. a collection of objects or information, so the <laughs> algorithm will pick up everything that has a reddish hue, for example, within a set of uh, information. Yeah. And then everything that doesn't have a reddish hue is excluded. Uh So it's got an exclusionary rule. And so that sense to me, that's why I would associate it sort of with the last train uh, to Nuremberg, Uh as it were. You know, and with uh, the final, what's called the final solution. Oh. Yeah. Uh, You know, and Hitler and extermination camps for Jewish people, you know, among other
2: people's. So how does that and connect? He so it connects for me. Now let
0: me just let me just keep going. It connects to me to to Leibniz, the you know 17th century natural, um, you know mathematician and natural philosopher, etc. And what Leibniz was interested in at the end of his life was and he was, you know, Leibniz uh, invented the calculator, invented, you know, a, a, a machine calculator that people used for making calculations. He was interested in a machine that, he, that would manipulate signs and symbols to tell the truth hmm. among, a, among mathematical statements. And so he became interested in what's called formal language, which has to do with words in, and letters combined with rules. That's what Noam Chomsky, for example, uh, at MIT. Noam Chomsky is very interested, and of course he, you know, evolved into a um, what is he?
1: Anarchist. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> a yeah. Po- political philosopher these days, right?
0: Yeah, for sure, an activist. And so, what Leibniz, that that thing that he was coming coming on was called the decision problem. The Und Problem. You know, pardon my uh, German. <laughs> and um, so he was trying to figure out how a machine could tell the truth. No, it leads to um, to David Hilbert, who in 1928, you know, asked this question again. And this is where Alan Turing comes in, because mm-hmm. Alan Turing was interested in this question. And what he did is he proved the negative, that a machine cannot tell the truth. I think it says something like computational systems cannot prove the validity of a mathematical statement in every structure, satisfying its axioms. And so Turing, from that, came to be interested in effective calculability. And that's what leads to what he invented, which is this thing that computes, which is um, both the the thing that we call a computer, but we also we also are computers. In other words, when you're working with a computer, you yourself are a computer. Mm
1: -hmm. You are the one that computes. Can I um, just say something? Well, um the work of Turing and other um, early computer scientists was ma- massively um, influential in, um, in the evolution of academic psychology that hmm. it le- it led in the 1950s to what's referred to um, as the cognitive revolution, which Noam Chomsky was part of during his early, early career. Part of this cognitive revolution in the work he was doing in psycholinguistics, Jerome Bruner, George Miller, and Ulrich um, Neisser, some other um, figures, but they they, um, took a lot of that um, early computer science and developed this um, theory, this emphasis on cognitive psychology, that it's Hmm. the computer in the human brain. That runs these various schemas, and that these um, these orders of um, operations are can be um, traced and are predictable to a degree. This is a real turn against, you know, psychoanalysis, phenomenological psychology that really focused on um, subjective meaning making. I guess.
2: And the but Freudians they, believed in the unconscious. Do the cognitives believe no, in the unconscious?
1: No, they didn't. Aha. Uh-huh. They
2: didn't. I mean, because a the computer.
1: They it, I they believe what they like cognitive lacuna, like cognitive gaps, places where your schemas were not implicated. That would be their equivalent, I guess. But um, they they didn't believe in some subterranean psychic realm where memory fragments are stored that need to cohere into consciousness at some point or not.
0: Yeah, uh, I believe that that the model is that human beings are. Biochemical made up of biochemical algorithms, and huh. that our mental processes are similarly governed by algorithms. Which I just want to say, Noval Noah Harari, who wrote the book, which you may be familiar with, called Homo Deus, a brief oh, yeah. history of tomorrow. Yeah,
1: I know that, that work too. He
0: he calls algorithm or the nature of the algorithm. Is arguably the single most co- most important concept in our world.
2: Huh. Wow. Hmm.
0: So, should we talk about it?
2: Well, I guess so. I mean, it reminds me of what Peter Lamborn Wilson says, and I think a lot of people say that the uh, the technology creates the metaphor for the human mind. When when we were talking over telephones. Everyone was sure that the mind was a giant telephone switchboard. Then they invented computers, and now the mind is a computer. Now we've invented algorithms, and it turns out the mind is an algorithm.
1: Freud likened the mind to a technology of his time, the steam engine. He really? Was, yeah, the steam engine, when he was, when he, when he was trying to explain um, homeostasis, that the, the uh. right balance between, I guess, water and steam. He appealed to a technology of his historical moment in his construction of a metaphor, exactly what you're, what you're talking about. And it's similarly, the radio
0: in terms of, I believe, you know, some people speak of psychic experience being similar to having a radio inside of you that you can turn the dial of and you can tune into different um, psychic frequencies. Yeah. For example, that was picked up by um, uh, in the Orphe by Cocteau, you know, oh. part of his Poets Trilogy, um, you know, telling the story of Orpheus. But the idea of the radio, of, of um, Orpheus listening to the radio and mm. getting messages from the planet Mars or, you <laughs> know, planet, you know, from the Underworld.
2: Right, and listening,
0: right. yeah, and transcribing those lines and making his poetry out of it. You know, Yeats had a similar attitude.
2: And also it kind of ties in to our uh, uh, report on the chariot, how the chariot became a big yeah. metaphor for all kinds of spiritual truths
1: right. back uh, when yeah.
2: people had chariots.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I recently had to create an algorithm. Oh, and um, I found it very useful. And uh, I'm, I'm not terribly mathematical, but I found it gratifying in some mathematical way, some um, participation in ordered forms. I don't know. I, I, uh, I liked it. But from the mini-mester program that I ran at Trinity School, I had to enroll maybe about 550 students across 40 different courses. Right. I- I had to make sure that there was even distribution and gender and age levels. Um, all sorts of variables went into the, um, the calculation. So I created a system for doing it, and then I plugged it into um, a, a Google program, and I was hmm. able to organize a massive amount of data. Hmm. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it was gratifying, right? In Plato's Academy, isn't geometry the highest intellectual form? I sort of get it. Plato said that? Yeah, or it's the the highest form of mathematics before you get into pure philosophical thought.
0: Right, like direct uh, intercourse with the nature of the good, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also a Pythagorean trope, you know, or notion.
2: Yeah. Are you sure that well, that's I mean, an algorithm that you made? Is that what you call that an algorithm?
0: Well, it was a, It was a set. Yeah, of per- that is an algorithm. That's a what an algorithm is is a finite, well-defined, unambiguous set of instructions. Yes. Oh, really? Yeah, and it all has to do with effective capability. In other words, what can it actually, what can it answer, and that's what leads to the algorithm, to the use of the algorithm and computers.
1: Now, the, shall I give you my little wrap? Yeah, I would love, I would love what you gave earlier. Is this an augmentation of that? Well, now we're really talking about the algorithm,
0: the first kind of algorithm. Um, seems to go back to the sieve <coughs> of Eratosthenes, who is an ancient Greek <laughs> who developed a um, a grid structure for the there. for the rapid calculation of prime numbers and itself. <coughs> In other words, you have this grid system for calculating prime numbers. And it can calculate all the prime numbers, you know, going forward into, in, you know, infinitely. And it also is itself. It can count all the prime numbers and, you know, that which calculates, that which arrives at all the prime numbers. Algorithms are linear. They go in one direction. Uh. Yeah. Uh, they had an early and consistent applicability to cryptology. Huh. You know, for breaking codes through applying algorithmic processes. The name algorithm comes from a 9th century Iranian named Al- uh, the 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 Greek um, Algorithmi, from which through you know this move and that became algorithm. I mean, I, I guess this is a little bit of a segue, but I I consider it a desecration. <laughs> Because of its, um, you know, it's a it's a word that's based on this man through a Greek and Latin and sort of, uh, you know, became algorithmus, and so it's it doesn't have an etymology, but the but the oh. problem is is that it cognitively and sonically resonates with rhythmos, namely yeah. rhythm. You know, that which is following a pattern of sound or shapes and ultimately derives from the Proto-Indo-European, which means to flow.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: But algorithm, it it, it seems like a bad joke.
2: Yes, my wife made the joke today. She Uh, said it sounds like a bunch of green single-cell organisms dancing.
0: Yeah. Or like
2: Like an algae algae rhythm.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Yeah, This this uh, Iranian mathematician was interesting. He wrote, you know, the primer on algorithms, but also on algebra more and perhaps more importantly for his time. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, he wrote he said that he was going to develop this textbook on the basis of that language system. Of the Indians based on two times five. Hmm. Yeah, he uses this phrase two times five, which of course is our hands. Hmm. You know, that's the basis of our ten number ten number system.
2: Hmm. It's interesting. And algebra is, of course, Arabic. One time I looked up like all the words in the dictionary that begin al. Al I think means the in uh al- uh arabic so alcohol algebra uh aladdin <laughs> <What about laughs> aluminum think. aluminum <laughs> i have to look it up now but i can't there's a whole bunch of them yeah uh, some now, of them are stars
0: now all this stuff you know like a recipe for cooking is an algorithm and huh. they're used they're yeah they're used to process data And so, uh, can I take a brief segue to Alfred North Whitehead? Okay. Who wrote the book Process and Reality. You know, a bunch of this stuff sort of goes back into this period in the 20s and 30s. Whitehead was part of that. You know, he worked with Bertrand Russell on the Principia Mathematica. And the aim of that project was to create a complete... Mathematical map of the universe. Wow! Yeah, and you know to arrive at the set of all sets.
1: Whitehead um, was a, phenomena- a phenomenologist, right? As well, he was not, but um, he was a philosopher um, wh- or mathematician, wasn't he? Um- a humanist as well? Yeah, he started off as a logician
0: and mathematician and then evolved into a, you know, straight up philosopher, you know. Yeah, and he, you know, he writes organism is a complex process and you know he speaks of physics as a small as a study of smaller organisms. But this is what Whitehead said. He said, and I quote, the race that doesn't value trained intelligence is doomed (laughs) which is somewhat ironic not it's it's deeply disturbing and ironic in that alan turing who invented the computer and uh you know broke code purple you know or broke codes in the second world war and saved england etc you know he was um castrated he was chemically castrated yeah
1: yeah, because of the estrogen and you know, imagine how invasive that that must have been. So obviously, you know, yeah. the,
0: the, this was an instance of not valuing, you know, what we call trained in intelligence. And then he goes on: "Let us grant that the pursuit of mathematics
1: is a divine
0: madness of the human spirit." <laughs>
1: I know, Immanuel Kant certainly believed so, right? He believed that the, um, the mind of God could be experienced through uh, moral philosophy, moral categories, and also through uh, geometrical proofs and, uh, and logic. It was through mathematics and huh. ethics that one could experience God, God consciousness. Huh. Those were the holy forms, the holy
2: intellectual pursuits. But maybe uh, these uh, algorithms are not precisely geometrical. I'm not sure how much they're geometrical. How much is a recipe geometrical?
0: Yeah, not not sure. But I do know that um, you know this divine madness and this idea of the trained intelligence, um, you know, applied to mathematics via algorithms. Leads to what's called the Internet of all things. Oh. You know, which um, I'm I'm sorry to report may not include us.
2: Us people?
0: Yeah, human beings. Yeah. Or at (laughs) best that, uh, you know, that our race, um, I guess, or species, you know, may become irrelevant.
2: Oh, I see. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads to this article that I was Stumbled upon in the New York Times from last Sunday. It's in the business section and it's called An Algorithm That Grants Freedom or Takes It Away. Subtitle Software is Now Making Life Changing Decisions. Opponents Want More Human Oversight by Cade Metz and Adam Satariano. And basically, what's happening is algorithms are being used in law enforcement to uh, arrange um, parole, sentencing, and um, and also to sort of predict. Now, that seems to be the element that I see about algorithms, is that they're predictive. Mm. So there's a, a photograph, this, I'll show you guys the photograph of this guy on the cover of the New York Times business section his name is Darnell Gates on probation in Philadelphia was deemed high risk by an algorithm one of many that governments are using to decide how people should be treated and it seems like basically judges don't want to decide anymore and they've decided I've created these algorithms that says that the, the practice spreads into new places and new parts of governments. There's a growing dependence on automated systems that are taking humans and transparency out of the process. It is often not clear how the systems are making their decisions. So in other words, these decisions about who should be on probation, how long should they be on probation, who is high risk, these are being decided, Who? no one knows quite how. Is gender a factor, age? Zip code—it's hard to say, since many states and countries have few rules requiring that algorithm makers disclose their formulas. And and then, meanwhile, in Holland, a uh, a court decided that they're throwing people—they're—they're choosing certain people who are high risk for welfare fraud using an algorithm. So Hmm. the algorithm looks at these people and says, well, you know, these are the kind of people that are most likely, predictively going to cheat the system. They're going to say that they live in a single apartment when in fact they live with seven other people. They're going to say they're unemployed when in fact they have a job. So Hmm. in Holland, the district court sided with the opponents and ordered an immediate halt to the risk algorithms use. In the closely watched case, which is seen as setting a precedent in Europe about government's use of predictive algorithms, the court said that the welfare program lacked privacy safeguards and that the government was inadequately transparent about how it worked. The decision can be appealed. So these algorithms are kind of making these life and death decisions about us. And it seems like people... Uh, you know, partly because of budget cuts, are, are sort of uh, opting out. And people are saying, kind of like what Sam is saying, you know, people are, the people that run these social service agencies are saying, well, let's just let the algorithm decide. That way it's fair. That way nobody can be caught uh, for making a terrible decision. So uh, people abdicate to the machine, to the algorithm, and let the, let the algorithm run everything. Why not? Yeah, because the
0: algorithm is still in its early stages uh, in that application, and the algorithm will learn, you know, as long as there's feedback. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, one way of looking at the algorithm, which, by the way, algorithms are a form of technology. They can be patented Hmm. because Hmm. they're the engine that, you know, runs inside of a computer, is to think of a vending machine. Now, this I I pick up from Harari also. That's a a tremendous resource and, uh, you know, great book. He uses the analogy of the vending machine for making coffee, where you make decisions about, you know, do you want black coffee? Do you want light coffee, different kinds of coffee? And do you want milk? You know, do you want a little milk? Uh, Do you want sugar? You know, so you make these uh, decisions. And then at the end of it, a cup comes out and all this stuff gets poured in and mixed up. Huh. And what he says is that that is an algorithmic process, but that the person who's pushing the buttons uh, via sensations, emotions, and thoughts is also an algorithm.
2: <laughs> it's really hard to say, you know, it's like you can't know whether or not you're an algorithm. <laughs> yeah.
0: My understanding is that natural science has also copped onto this idea that animals are algorithms.
2: Oh, that was one thought that I had, actually. You know, I was just thinking, I mean, the, the algorithms that I really know intimately are the ones that I deal with in my computer life, particularly the one I really love is my YouTube algorithm that I think is really um, kind of intimate, personal, and challenging, kind of offers me new opportunities. And the one example that I give that's really sort of struck me the most vividly uh, was I have a friend, Tracy Morris, who's a, uh, a spoken word poet, a poet, a performer, a jazz singer, So I was looking up uh, one of her videos to send to a friend of mine. And for some reason, you asked for Tracy Morris, and then the next option is Rodney Dangerfield. Rodney Dangerfield, (laughs) the uh, Jewish comedian of the 70s and 80s. And uh, and so I watched. Tracy's video, and then I got kind of hooked on Rodney Dangerfield. Like, yes. I just became kind of fascinated with what he was doing, and I was just very grateful to this insane and yet, you know, kind of um, gifted algorithm that could uh, combine these two uh, cultural forces. Sparrow, the same thing happened to me.
1: <laughs> over Tracy YouTube, Morris? No, over YouTube... I encountered Rodney Dangerfield as well, oh. and, and then proceeded to listen to um, a very um, significant number of interviews that he had given over the years, Huh. pretty much until his last year. And um, I I found him to be a fascinating figure, especially when he was um, serious. Uh huh. In the interviews, when when he when he didn't have the comedic you know persona up. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I. I I found him fascinating, including the final interview he gave on the Howard Stern show. Wow. The year of his death, when he's he's quite elderly and a little uh, unkempt, but uh, uncharacteristically Rodney Dangerfield. But he talks very candidly about life and um, his regrets and the things that he was proud of. And um, he's he's very, I thought, very, very thoughtful and kind of funny and. Um, respectful to the interviewer. I was uh, sort of moved by it, actually. Hmm.
2: Like a real
0: manifestation of deep um, human qualities.
2: Yeah. Cohen, his name is Cohen. He's a priest. He's officially from the tribe of Jewish priests.
1: Is he? Oh, he's a Cohen.
2: Cohen, Cohen. You know, I don't know. I assume he's a secular Jew and never thinks about religion, but he has this kind of sacred uh, role in theory
1: what you know i started delving into this um but i didn't get very far but is there a an algorithm of sorts in um, kabbalistic huh. theology and mystical practice um i've just huh. I've, I've seen the various um the chart of the um spiritual the Right. Yeah, exactly. There's like a theological set of procedures that occurs that implicates the body and the the heart and the higher spirit. I find it very interesting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I I I would jump in just real quick and say, you know, alchemical um, processes, hmm. um, the transmutation of base metals into gold, that is that's an algorithm.
2: Yeah. It's a recipe. Maybe a bogus algorithm, but an algorithm.
1: <laughs> is there any sort of, well, of history out there that believes I mean, what, d- did alchemy happen? Were there successful <laughs>
0: substances? Um, broadly speaking, my understanding is that it's a, a, a metaphorical structure, uh, you know, for sorry. rising to higher and higher thresholds of connection with nothing yeah
2: well you you turn the lead into gold you turn your sort of base personality into spirit that it it wasn't literal theoretically the idea of alchemy but i've never heard of uh, it's funny because i have a lot of friends who believe a lot of impossible things like i remember in the 70s when i was around these spiritual hippies because I was a spiritual hippie. And there was a guy, Babaji, I think his name was, who was like this 15-year-old guru who was actually timeless, ageless, eternal. He, I think had lived about 500 years, but I think he was immortal. And supposedly people would see him when they were like, they would see him hitchhiking like in the Midwest. You know, like there were rumors that this guy Babaji was around. But I never heard anyone say, oh, yeah, I have a friend who turned lead into gold. You know, I never heard. Did you meet Babaji? I never met him. No, no. He was just, you know, a fabled. And I think there were virgin births. I remember hearing there were real virgin births, that it wasn't that rare. (laughs) I think I heard that. So, you know, like just I don't know, just thinking about it. Because I have this theory about Trump being the first um, hippie president, you know, that Trump is the first president who really believes all sorts of bizarre things, the impossible things, and also kind of paranoid things, like he thinks that the CIA and the FBI are out to destroy him. And all my friends think that the CIA and the FBI are out to destroy them, you know, like, like, that's a very common hippie belief, like and recently, when Trump gave this insane uh, tirade about dirty cops, he says, just a bunch of dirty cops out for me. You know, it just sounds, it just sounds like hippies. You know, it just sounds like speed freak hippies with a gun under their bed. You know, like I think there's a lot of a lot of his kind of magical thinking reminds me of the magical thinking that I've been around and maybe to some extent perpetuated my whole life.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, definitely. Um, The hippie creed involves like a high threshold of paranoia, you know, and uh, yeah. And
2: and Trump is exactly the age of the real hippies. I mean, he's whatever he is, 72, 74. Like, like I'm 66. I'm like another generation. I'm not the real true hippie. I'm like the (laughs) 70s spiritual hippies. Did you wear Earth
1: shoes in the 70s?
2: I did. Why does that?
1: No. What, what proof are,
2: that I'm a hippie? What are Earth shoes? I think they're like lower at the back than in the front. Like the idea is you're walking on on a sand on a beach, a sandy beach in Jamaica. That's the best thing for your feet is to walk on a sandy beach in Jamaica, Hawaii, wherever hippies go. So if yes. you can't walk on that beach, you buy these shoes that replicate that experience for your feet. Earth shoes are just like walking on a sandy beach.
0: The heel is lower than your toes or whatever that thing is behind your toes. Like yeah. that's the experience of walking on a sandy beach as your heel digs in. And then yeah, you get they... that massage. <laughs>
2: They're kind of related in a way to waterbeds, you know? Like which were another kind of hippie phenomenon that completely have disappeared off the face of the earth.
1: Yeah, right. Did you have one Domes? Of those? I like uh, waterbeds, my friend.
0: Geodesic domes. Yeah. You
2: have you've slept in a waterbed?
1: I had a few friends in Poughkeepsie growing up who had waterbeds um, maybe bequeathed to them by their parents or something. It was uh-huh. in the eighties. But I remember playing on a few waterbeds and finding it pretty far out.
2: Yeah. You were a little kid?
0: Uh, <laughs> I remember my friend uh, Tommy and I broke into uh, <laughs> this, this other kid's house and we're like goofing around. And his mom had a waterbed. So we were <laughs> out there like bouncing around. And I guess, I mean, word came back that we broke her bed.
2: Well, it doesn't not, doesn't surprise me. It's not that hard to break a waterbed. Yeah, it's funny. My dad and I, my dad just turned 101. And like about a month ago, we were discussing waterbeds. And he was saying, what a stupid idea. That was like the stupidest idea ever, waterbeds. And then I, like, I talked to him because he doesn't really hear much. I talked to him by talking into his iPhone. And then it prints that out on the screen. And I said to him, um... In my experience, waterbeds were really uncomfortable to sleep on, but pretty good for having sex on. Ha, ha, ha. And then how he did, agreed that he did, that's the logic of it.
1: What's <laughs> well, birth- got that reverb? Happy birthday to your dad. Oh,
2: thanks. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should dedicate this uh, podcast to him.
1: How did, he him on Definitely. His, how did he see him on his 101st birthday?
2: Completely jubilant. I mean, we had a big party, lots of people. It was like one of those parties that was so big, like it was in waves. Right. You know, like one crowd would come and then they'd disappear and the new group would come, you know. there were like two or three waves. A lot of cakes, two or three cake, birthday cakes. At least we sang happy birthday at least twice to him. So he really was honored. Yeah, he was really happy. He's super appreciative now. You know, he sort of developed this personality of a 101-year-old person. You know, appreciative, kind, very in love with small children. (laughs) Lovely. He was just this bitter, depressed Marxist my whole childhood. But now he's like, (laughs) I hope he doesn't hear this. But, uh, you know, now he's just uh, generous and mostly appreciative and receptive. (laughs) Um, One question
0: I would have, Sparrow, is do you feel as though your father... Gives off an algorithmic resonance that he, <laughs> does he strike you as an algorithm?
2: I mean, I was thinking about this. You know, I started this uh, what's the word uh, uh, digression on YouTube about YouTube that led us to discuss uh, Rodney Dangerfield. So what I was interested in was just this feeling of that my uh, YouTube algorithm understands me, knows me, and is also kind of willing to challenge me with difficult, um, you know, interesting suggestions. But the idea that it kind of knows me intimately, that's what made me think about pets, you know, the way a dog in particular, but I think a cat too, and like any other kind of creature that you're really intimate with, can, um, you know, you, you come home and the dog looks up at you and the dog can kind of tell your mood, you know, can tell whether you're in the mood to take a walk or or whether you you need to kind of quiet down a little. You know, so I was thinking about the way that a dog has this predictive quality, you know, that uh, it, it looks at you and kind of has a sense of what you need next. Like the YouTube uh, channel, like if I'll listen to a Rihanna video, it's like, well, how about you know, a Katy Perry video. You like divas, I get the idea. You're kind of a diva-liking person, you know.
0: Do you know that uh, Ray Bradbury short story about the neighborhood dogs? It involves, like, kids, you know, kids have dogs, and then you have a friend, and he's got a dog, and the neighborhood's full of dogs, right? And the basis of this short story is that this dog and his um young person um you know owner you know the person that he hangs out with he talks to him he says hey you know you really don't want to go into that culvert it's gonna flood there's rain Mm. coming Mm. you know Mm. and it's gonna flood you gotta stay out of that culvert and it's like oh my god my dog's talking to me (laughs) and then and then what happens is that the neighborhood dogs find out that this one dog has talked to its master and they get together and they, well, sadly, they kill the dog that spoke to this <laughs> owner. Uh-huh. Because, I mean, the, you know, I have a bunch of dogs and cats and uh, well, yeah. it's true that there is a symbiotic, intuitive, uh, fluid understanding that we share, you know, and that the, all my animals turn to me in a kind of, you know, they're they're kind of with me. But the truth is that they're not really pets. I really work for them. <laughs> you know, I feed them, I make sure they have water, I'm opening right. the door for them to go out, I'm opening the door to bring them back in take them to the doctor, you know, doing all these uh, things to take care of them. They've got, like, this terrific ride, which is what all those neighborhood dogs said is, like, you can't oh, blow see. the deal, man. Well, <laughs> and so, you know, my take is that it appears as though YouTube is intuitively kind of picking up on your is and that's and is feeding you and so on and so forth. But the truth is, um, you know, you're – helping YouTube to grow in its algorithmic predictability and ability to, to match your set of characteristics mm. with, with whatever it is it's serving you. And we believe it's an economic model. But I would continue, you see, if animals are biochemical algorithms, you know, shaped by three million years of, uh, you know, Um, evolutionary crafting and that seems to be the basis you know of of natural science now is really emphasizing the current historical uh, uh, scientific paradigm and this is the second point if algorithms are not affected by the system of delivery that is the way in which you reach that algorithm whether it's an abacus a texas instrument calculator Or a computer, if Mm. they're not affected by the system of delivery, then, gentlemen, there's (laughs) no reason a non-organic algorithmic machine will not come to rule the biological algorithms. Because they're better at it. They're faster, Mm. uh, more efficient, uh, less redundant. Um, you know, and absent mistakes, so that what somebody like Harari is looking at is a move from carbon to silicon basis, that silicon will triumph over carbon-based um, algorithms. What does that mean exactly? It means that we're going to end up with the Internet of all things. Oh. In which there's a computer uh, uh, penumbra around the Earth.
2: Uh Uh-oh. We've just, I think that the algorithm just... uh, Just ended. Zapped to Sam.
1: (laughs) Algorithms fail. And I know that recently in um, the Iowa caucus...
2: Oh, yeah. The, I guess uh, that was an algorithm right I think it was an algorithm well, it's back it was an
0: app so we end up with this internet of all things where everything is connected through a uh, 5g network you know this thing they're pushing now is all for this internet of all things which I call nettle net all Nettle
2: <laughs> you came and up I, with that term
0: yeah 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 Nettle that's what we're going to call it. And I would go back to the actual meaning of compute. The actual meaning of compute means to reckon with. It means to gather, to bring together, to to reckon with, to gather. And its derivation is to prune. Prune? Yeah,
1: as you would a nettle. (laughs) Hence, Hence your thesis about elimination, about loss. Hmm. The, yeah. pruning, the pruning of the extraneous, <laughs>
2: which,
1: which, which often isn't extraneous, of course. Yeah. yeah, I
0: know. Unfortunately, I believe, I mean, you know, according to this model, it's uh, these biochemical, um, inefficient, uh, wasteful, uh, murderous, um, but also many other things,
1: <laughs> carriers
0: of the algorithm will become redundant. And that Mm. algorithms, there's no reason why algorithms shouldn't come to own things and why algorithms shouldn't be able to take over. Mm. You know, similar to owning things like uh, these things we call nations, own things, Mm -hmm. have borders or corporations. Or, you Mm. know, Marduk, you know,
1: owned Babylon, for example.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm.
1: Do you guys run algorithms in your life um, that, or do you feel you're a algorithmic in your your approach to
2: things? Well, I mean, I think of algorithms and maybe, you know, this is not the correct definition, but I think of them as predictive. So that's, that's what made me think that pets are algorithmic. And also to finish the point about my dad, I think that my dad is algorithmic with me in the sense that he's predictive you know i come to visit him and he kind of looks at me and sees if i want to hang out and talk or if i want to go and look at my email he can sort of sense that so uh you know that that ability to sort of pick up uh, clues and hints you know i i see that as as algorithmic as somewhat algorithmic yeah. so i mean you know like my relationship with my wife you know i'm kind of Like we, you know, she comes into my, uh, to the meditation room while I do yoga, typically in uh, the middle of the day, around one o'clock in the afternoon, and then we talk. So what what does that mean? It means I wait for her to say something. You know, I've discovered that if I'm the one that starts talking, I'm never going to stop talking and she's never going to say anything and she's going to get bored with my stupid life. So then I wait for her, which takes a while, for her to kind of come up with her report of the day. I mean, to me, that's kind of an algorithmic style. Or kind <laughs> of pattern, yeah. Yeah, it's like I've kind of learned to predict her a little bit.
0: Yeah. I was going to I was gonna say, um, do you guys know what the OODA loop is? No. Mm. The OODA loop was uh, something that was cooked up by a guy named Colonel John Boyd. He was an Air Force colonel. Uh, very interesting uh, person and, you know, an infinite subject. But the OODA loop is um, what we operatively exist within and that many organic creatures um, ha- have a similar orientation um, <laughs> to to this theater, you know, of life. And it, the OODA loop stands for Observe, so you observe a phenomena, and -hmm. then orient yourself to that phenomena. You figure out what your relationship is with that phenomena. And the orient part is complicated because it also comes with all of your cultural Hmm. mores, uh, rules of behavior, Um, all your past experience (laughs) and so forth. You know, this whole uh, what Yates called jumble of coincidences that sits down to breakfast. (laughs) And so that orient thing is kind of complicated. And then the D is for decide. And then the A at the end is what? So you've observed, you've oriented, you've decided. So you're going to make some decision relative to orientation to this observation, what are you going to do next? Adapt. Oh, adapt is good. I like that. Uh, yeah, adapt is correct, pretty act. much. I mean, it's act. Yeah. yeah. And then you go back to observe. So you act, and then you observe what that action
2: hmm.
0: uh, resulted in a change in observation. Hmm. Yeah, it was applied famously, um, uh, Colonel Boyd was in close communication with Cheney, Vice President Dick Cheney, Uh and the first, what they call the first Iraq war was fought. On the basis of Boyd's ideas about warfare, mobility and warfare, you know, and getting inside another person's OODA loop. That's how you win.
2: And that was a very successful war on our side. You know, we like no losses.
1: Televised, right?
2: Oh, yeah.
1: You know, people watched it every night, kind of footage from the war and infrared, you know, explosions and highways outside of Baghdad and it was a, a nightly thing it was always on the news cycle too CNN was developing the news cycle so there was a saturation of those images I think hmm. it have been in seventh grade but um they really uh, entered into my consciousness
2: hmm. what did you think yeah, of the,
1: um well I guess was, I guess at that point I I, I didn't I wasn't critical. I didn't have a real political consciousness. I I feel um, because my grandparents were in the Second World War and my brother ended up going to West Point. There was military in my family and I probably had a patriotic sentiment about it on some level, though another part of me never liked war or killing. So I think that I was um, frightened of it as well.
2: But there wasn't too much death in it. For something that went took place every night, it was a little oh, bit uh, sort of pyrotechnical. It was kind of um, like you watched uh, these uh, lights uh, in the sky.
0: Me, I watch. don't know the the war and then the immediate aftermath. There were a quarter million um, people. A quarter
1: million, two hundred. That's quite mm-hmm. a that's quite a moment for the algorithm to fail.
2: I know this algorithm is really making its point very forcefully tonight. <laughs> <laughs> The algorithm has it in for Sam with all his theories.
1: Yeah, they're starting to silence him.
2: He's yeah, a- I think he's getting too close to the center of the uh, conspiracy.
1: <laughs> I
0: think like quarter million people died as in the aftermath of the war. Remember the depleted uranium and oh, yeah. um, you know it was a it was a total
1: disaster. you know. And how about those oil wells that were glazed um, and just oh. spewing, oh, spewing yeah. chemicals into the atmosphere?
2: But yeah. there was a, a show at PS1, I think it's still there actually, um, of art relating to all the American wars in Iraq that I saw recently. And it had a room where you watched that TV news from the war that you're talking about. So fairly recently, I was watching that, uh, you know, that exact TV show you're talking about, the, the Persian Gulf War, the first war on American TV, which, you know, looks kind of weirdly out of date now. The Something about the fashions of the newscasters and, and just the whole way it's presented seems very archaic somehow. But I'm just saying, like, you don't see bunches of corpses. You just see like rockets exploding in the air. I mean, anyway, they, that was my sense of it, you know. Yeah. Like
1: the algorithm that failed, an algorithm failed that was responsible for the meltdown at Chernobyl huh. in the 1980s. There were, you know, that, you know, there were the, the scientists or the engineers were following the algorithm, and it huh. didn't accommodate some sort of fluke occurrence um, that just was not predicted in the um, predictive model and ended up causing this, you know, the meltdown
2: of the rods. It's a great title for something, The Algorithm That Failed. Maybe yeah. a novel, the like the novel of our time.
1: I think it should be The Novel of Our Time, The Algorithm That Failed.
2: And maybe I'm going to read uh, some of my aphorisms about algorithms because we're sort of winding down. I write these things that I call first lines of novels because theoretically each one could be the beginning of a vast, perhaps even an epic novel. So I wrote three of them about algorithms. When an algorithm dies, stock analysts weep. God has an algorithm for generating algae. I collect vintage algorithms and this is the poem I found by Robert Ranau from June 2017. It's dated because it's on the internet. It's called The Master Algorithm. Some say the scientific method is the ultimate algorithm, and others prefer prayer.
1: Mm.
0: Say no more. <laughs> Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and
1: strange.